you're a journalist, you work for the Washington Post, you've heard countless stories, you're in touch with a wide variety of people. What have you observed people observing or not observing? I'm sure you've come in contact with blind spots. Is this something that you've, I guess, that you've thought about as you've been learning about billionaires and how they behave, but at the same time monitoring the situation among young people in the U.S.? Yeah, it's something that I think about a lot. And I think a lot of people in the Catholic and other scenes Mm -hmm. are thinking about one of the great virtues of the young, says the person who's hopefully also still young, is that we Mm. are able to conceive of a new system, Mm. like the idea that the system is fixed and unchangeable is not quite as firmly rooted in Mm -hmm. young people, I think. So we can actually imagine sort of overturning it in some way. But I think that after the financial crash in 2008, which Mm -hmm. came sort of at the beginning to center of many of our adult lives and really upended Mm -hmm. that and also just made Mm -hmm. also after Occupy Wall Street, you know, which just made the image and idea of inequality so salient and mm. so visible for young people. Mm-hmm. And then just looking at sort of the the really not positive trajectory that the U.S. is on mm-hmm. um, for the younger generations. Like we may be the first generation who are worse off than our parents. Mm. Like this was actually discussed, I think, yesterday. I had a um, friend who was talking to me about this. You know, we Life were... expectancy is falling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's actually, Jeffrey Sachs mentioned that life expectancy in the U.S. is down. I have a friend who's, I guess he's 34. I'm 32. We were saying, well, our upbringing in the 90s was sort of the tail end of the middle class, it feels mm-hmm. like. The expectations that we were raised with, you know, that we would have a minivan, And we'd have a house in the suburbs. Like those expectations simply don't exist. I mean, this was the beginning of the crisis was people had bought houses in the suburbs on credit that they then couldn't afford. The entire economy crashed. Right. And I think young people are sort of waking up. and They're like, wait, that's not fair. And then they also have to think about then, like, what is fairness? Like, what do we deserve? What Hmm. is an actually what would an actually good world look like for Mm -hmm. us? And A, who shares that vision? So mm. maybe it's sort of out there seeming socialist candidates. And what can we do to bring it about? Because mm. also, I think with the advent of the internet mm. and other information sources, we can kind of see other places in the world mm-hmm. where this is not happening and see policies that could be implemented yeah. here. Like, you know, maternity and paternity leave are not impossible. Mm. We see them happening in all mm-hmm. these other countries. Like a fair economic system is not like an impossible dream. It doesn't have to be like the old America. That's also part of it, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Young people may be a little bit more skeptical of the idea of America as a concept, as the perfect place, the, you know, Mm -hmm. faultless country, the city on a hill, because we've kind of seen it go differently. Mm -hmm. But then again, thinking about, you know, well, maybe socialism is the answer or some other form of government. Again, what is the ethic behind that? Who decides that? What do we really mean when we say this is fair, Mm. this is not fair? And what are the systems that we need to change? Mm. Because actually saying, I was thinking about this, I was at a wedding recently, I went to Princeton. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm a journalist, like I have other friends who are artists who are working in various fields. Mm. And there's also a huge contingent of people who went Mm. directly to Goldman Sachs um, to hedge funds. Mm -hmm. And 
even at this wedding, just like the the delta between different people's lives mm-hmm. was so odd and obvious, but it was not necessarily clear that those who were really wealthy, you mm. know, friends of mine who graduated to make $500,000 per year once they left school mm. are not necessarily thinking that that's unfair and mm-hmm. do not necessarily want to change the system. Mm. It's really easy to get comfortable mm. being wealthy once you are, whatever age you are. And these are choices, as you're saying, that people make. Right. Um, people can decide whether they want to pursue finance, whether they want to pursue art. I mean, one is going to be more remunerative Mm -hmm. than the other. I found it so interesting that Jeffrey Sachs was talking about the lack of ethical formation that goes on in today's universities. The fact that economists can be trained to look at supply and demand, but to not ask, well, what is the end of this market? Mm -hmm. Is this market improving outcomes? Maximizing shareholder value. Yeah. The most pernicious idea of the past half century. Yeah, or this idea of a rational actor, the self-interested human being. It's really an impoverished vision of what a human being can be. I think that's what Sachs Sachs was finding so interesting about the Catholic social teaching tradition is that it gives a rounder picture of what a human being is. And that's not an isolated individual actor. It's so funny. It's like he was saying that, Sachs was saying, I mean, that the birth of capitalism, he was giving a kind of economic history of the United States, saying, well, global capitalism sort of began uh, right around the time of Columbus. That's the first time that you had global trade on a massive scale. But industrial capitalism, which is bound up with the birth of the United States, that really, he, I think he talked about a systematization of greed or mm-hmm. a harnessing of a kind of dynamism and an energy where people pursue their own ends, and that's somehow supposed to be virtuous. And it's, it's just it's radically contrary to the Catholic intellectual tradition, to the Catholic social doctrine, which is to say that we are responsible to each other. Like, we're not responsible to our shareholders. We're responsible to the people that we share the earth with. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why young people or young Catholics are beginning, or maybe they have been all along. I mean, I'm a convert, but Mm. are particularly interested in Catholic social teaching when it comes to these questions. Because as you say, there Mm. is a more, even if you don't agree with it or have questions, there Mm. is an actually like rounded theory of the human person. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are actually like pretty clear directives um, as to what the common good is and like what Mm -hmm. that could look like. And they are very distinct from what we have now. Exactly. Uh, And so it's just, it's a fascinating contrast to make. And one is clearly like more attractive than the other. I found it so interesting when you asked Cardinal Tobin and Jeffrey Sachs, well, okay, so neoliberalism, contemporary capitalism doesn't seem to be working. Does the church have a system or do you, Jeffrey Sachs, have a system that you recommend? And they kind of hedged a little bit. They're Mm -hmm. like, well, we don't have a system. That is, they don't have a complete picture or an idealized version of how things would work in a utopia. He said a sort of like mixed market system, like a healthy Mm -hmm. market system, whatever that would look like. Yeah. Some mixture of, well, not everything is a commodified, Mm -hmm. tradable good. Other things are, you know, there needs to be public health care. There needs to be education. There needs to be road and infrastructure. And we wouldn't subject those to the forces of the private market. But they were very reluctant to come out and say, this is what we think will work. And I guess what I found so interesting was maybe we don't need to know exactly how things are going to unfold or how we have an idea of what a just society would Mm -hmm. look like. Uh, It's one where everybody's included. I think that's partly why Ocasio-Cortez has been so popular 
is she's able to kind of provide that vision of what would it look like if other people with different skin colors and genders were included in the conversation, other people from different economic backgrounds. I don't, so I don't know. I, I think that the Catholic intellectual tradition or, the, or Catholic social teaching, it seems to offer principles, if not necessarily mm-hmm. an answer. Yeah. I, the other thing that I would say that I, I think is interesting about Catholic social teaching on economic questions mm-hmm. is just looking at our prevailing sort of capitalist system and Mm -hmm. the way that we've been taught to think about products and the economy, like all of that sort of bleeds into how we think about life and interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. So like, yes, we, you know, buy and sell products in the market, Mm -hmm. but then that also leads, if you do that enough, you start thinking of your interactions with other people Mm -hmm. as transactions, like other people become commodified you know there's the discussion your time becomes commodified yeah like oh is it worth it to have a baby or like well (laughs) is it worth it yeah yeah or like can i get this other person to consent to having sex with me as though it's some sort of like you give me this and i give you that and as long as we all agreed to it like the market is fair sex is an exchange yeah of a good yeah you can and if you have enough money yeah you can sort of buy anything and one of the exciting and i think compelling things about the Catholic social teaching mm-hmm. here is that it really stands apart from that. Mm-hmm. I think it actively says, like, no, mm-hmm. these are not transactions. Like, the way that you interact with other people and think about your life and mm-hmm. your existence in the world has a deeper value and a sort of connected value that is not monetary. And that forces you to really revise how you think about your mm-hmm. ends and your means mm-hmm. uh, in a way that's challenging, but also. Mm-hmm. Transactions are exhausting. Transactions are incredibly uh, exhausting. And really unpleasant when yeah. you think about... They're draining. I mean, they're yeah. literally draining. <laughs> like it's, a, it's a really sad way to live when you're thinking that everything is sort of a trade-off where you're giving mm-hmm. things away and not getting anything in return or whatever. And there are more beautiful ways to conceive of life and more connected ways too. Mm. And I think Catholic social teaching is one of the places where you can sort of see that writ out, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Cardinal Tobin, he kept referring to Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, which of course is the first line of St. Francis of Assisi's famous poem, The Canticle of Creatures, where he does develop a different understanding of how we can interact with other beings and things, namely relationally. That is, instead of expecting to get something from you, in fact, I give it to you. There's a, he talks about a kind of gift economy, where instead of buying and selling, it's giving and receiving. That there can always be more. It's a kind of generative, I guess you could say, relational nexus that comes to replace the marketplace, where money no longer gives you power over another person. It's interesting, we were talking about Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. And you know they have vast power because they have so much money. Mm-hmm. But their money doesn't guarantee that they can relate to people in a human way. And it seems to me that that's what Francis, or Tobin, um, also representing Francis, is trying to get at. This idea of relationality, that we need to restore some sense of uh, viewing each other as persons. (laughs) People that we can see and hear and interact with, not for what we can carry away or not what we can consume. If we reduce ourselves to thinking of ourselves as consumers, we're not really going to be full people. What's the point of all this consumption? Yeah, actually, also beauty. Like, there are these goods that are not really commodifiable. How do you price beauty or how do you price goodness? Like, what is life worth? 
Mm-hmm. And in market systems, sometimes when you can't price something, it doesn't exist. exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's alarming. Like that's that's unpleasant when we sort of begin to lose our conceptions of all of these goods, like even thinking about environmentalism, Mm -hmm. right? Like if it's only about like how much of this forest can we save so that we can, I don't know, use it to create or take away a certain amount of CO2. Like Mm -hmm. what about just the good of the forest as a place? One of the most moving parts of Cardinal Tobin's remarks I found was when he talked about what the meaning of inequality was. And he had this very interesting formulation, which was that inequality means that I sometimes can't see other people for who they really are. Hmm. And a more equal economy would be one in which I can see another person for their entire truth. That is, I see what goes beyond the immediately visible. I'm able to consider them. And he spoke from his pastoral experience. And that seemed very much, I'd never seen him speak in person before, but that seemed very much who he was, a pastor, somebody who guides people, somebody who's close to people. And he talked about this experience with a man named Ollie. And I forget how he had encountered this person, but he was speaking about the question of racial difference. And he said, Joe, Joseph is his name, right? He said, do you love me? And he said, of course I love you, you know. He said, no, but do you love me as a black man? And he said, Cardinal Tobin said, well, and he wasn't a cardinal at the time. He said, well, what do you mean? I don't, I don't see your race. I don't see no. you as different. And Ollie he said... understood was problematic. Exactly. He said, no, you need to love me as a black man, as I actually am. And he said, that's why, that's the metaphor that he uses to himself. We blind ourselves to the full reality of another person's situation. And that's how inequality exists, Hmm. because we simply don't see it, or we choose not to see it. We've got structures, mental structures, social structures that prevent us from seeing the full way that another person exists in the world, that every aspect of their, their personhood is important. So I thought it was so interesting that this invisibility, this learning to see, that's partly what we need to do in the economy, is to learn to see the people who perform services for us, Mm -hmm. the people who are invisible. There needs to be a light shined on them. And then on the flip side of this, Jeffrey Sachs was speaking about invisibility in this other way, uh, which is this notion of the invisible hand. Well, we believe in the invisible hand. I mean, ask Americans about, you know, economics. They'll say, well, the invisible hand guides everything. Mm -hmm. So I was asking myself, well, how is it that we have on the one hand, this inability to see what's real, that is the fact that there's inequality and we don't believe in it. And on the other hand, we have something that we can't verify at all, which is the existence of an invisible hand, but we can't touch it. So there's this kind of contradiction that I was observing. Invisibility and visibility, I think that's a really interesting dynamic Mm -hmm. to talk about because inequality, I think, really does sort of create a chasm Mm -hmm. of sort of lived experience and even contact Mm -hmm. between people of different classes or races Mm -hmm. or amounts of money. Like just like bringing this up, the idea of invisibility, I think that's one of the things that has sort of come to light in the journalistic profession Mm -hmm. and news reporters after Mm -hmm. the Trump election, Mm -hmm. because suddenly people realize like, oh, they're, wow, they're like, People who vote for Trump and like maybe some of them are poor and perhaps they live in Appalachia. Well, we must go find them. Hmm. And it's sort of like people 
parachuting into these places that they apparently didn't realize existed mm. before to, you know, try and scrape some meaning from these people who they don't know. And that's not necessarily making them more visible. And it's also not necessarily seeing them as a whole person. Mm -hmm. Like if you go to sort of Midwest town and like, I'm going to write a profile of like sad white person whose factory closed, like that's very... A very flat It's part of their story, picture. but it's not the whole story. <laughs> yeah, that's not the yeah. whole person. And so I think that's, even if you feel sort of guilty and responsible, it's a danger that you can still fall into. As for me, uh, how I try and make the invisible visible, one of the things that I have found both exciting and troubling mm. as a writer and journalist is the idea of race. Hmm. Which is like something I think about as mm -hmm. a black woman, obviously, but especially in this time period, hmm. I notice increasingly how few people of color there often are in newsrooms mm -hmm. and how sometimes just being there and writing from that perspective, which is actually quite difficult for me because I, I don't necessarily like love first person writing or like spilling my guts before the world. Mm -hmm. So why am I an opinion writer, you ask? Great question. <laughs> um, but I think that actually some of my best columns or the columns that have resonated with people the most mm. were some of the most gruesome for mm. me to write, mm. like writing after Charlottesville. And I wrote that piece mm. that was it was really just like kind of a yelp of desperation. Just like, why is nobody listening? And people kind of felt that. Or after one of the many mm -hmm. police shootings, I wrote about how, like, I'm a black woman. And I, I have an older brother mm. who is also black. And like, when this happens, I can totally imagine this being a member of my family and like what that feels like. Mm. And so many people wrote to me after I wrote that piece saying like, wow, I never... I never like thought about that. Like mm. I never thought about a real person, basically. And so just like being in the place where I can try at least to bring an experience to life that other people might not have encountered mm. is hopefully one one way of making the invisible visible. But I also know that I have a lot of blind spots myself. Mm. I mean, like you know, went to Princeton. I went to an Ivy League school. Now I like live in downtown DC and work at the Washington Post. Like there's a lot that I'm missing. And so I think part of the task also is to try and remember that and to stay aware and to look for those stories, even if they are outside of your comfort zone or not your area of expertise. And that's something that I, I need to challenge myself to do more. Mm -hmm. And I think would challenge all reporters to do more and mm. yes also to create the whole picture of the person mm. again not just covering like oh this is a shooting or like that's a homeless person but like what else is going on like who really are we not just mm. the surface activity mm -hmm. deep values are at stake people's lives are at stake it seems like the stakes for journalism have never been higher mm -hmm. the stakes for writing have never been higher and this idea of well, that i can somehow be detached as a writer or as a person of faith, it no longer stands. You have to take a stand. Yeah. Um, I think that's, to go back to the vocation question, in some ways that's also, thinking of my work as a journalist mm. as a vocation is also one thing that 
makes me do it, I guess, because it, it can be sort of very uncomfortable. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And you like you see a lot and it's it's kind of a downer yeah. a lot of the time. But thinking of it as a vocation, like what can I offer to the world. But I wonder if you could speak a bit about this, that it seems that as a journalist, your job is to reassure, but also at the same time to unsettle. And have you been growing in comfort with that unsettling aspect of your writing? Oh, man. Um, (laughs) I tend to be thoroughly moderate, but I also just like really like listening to other people's ideas Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of like thinking about both. So I I can sometimes be a both sideser, like mm. on the one hand and on the other hand, but people do come to our writing for like a perspective, mm-hmm. not just a literature review. So forcing myself mm. to produce like a specific perspective and like really mm. make a stand or come out for something mm. is a challenge sometimes. Mm. But it's a really useful one, I think, because mm. as you were saying, it forces you to reveal more of yourself and it forces you to like take a look at what your own real perspective is. It's a personal challenge. But to sort of toggling between, I guess, scaring people and encouraging them, that's actually something I I really struggle with as a writer in this totally bizarre Earth 2 time period. Yes. Strange but, times we live in. Yeah. I would actually say that one of my one of my major struggles as a writer right now mm. is sort of not succumbing to a kind of despair mm. at times because it's just, I think it's also part of it is the fact that I'm just reading the news and watching the news and seeing everything that happens all the, mm. time. All the time. Like I don't have much distance from it. But so much of it is like bad and frightening and problematic, I guess, mm. that it can be really worrying. But on the other hand, that is very much where sort of faith and the idea of vocation comes in. Like, I think mm. it would be very, I think it would be even more difficult to sort of cover issues like this if you didn't have a sense that things were attached to a greater meaning, mm. um, that there was something, you know, in the future, mm-hmm. <laughs> that there was something coming. There's something worth fighting for. Yeah. There are principles. Yeah, uh, there, are real, there are real things. This isn't all just like a cosmic joke and everything is terrible. So interesting. I remember being in college uh, right before the financial crisis. And if we had, just to bring it back to the conversation we were having about the choices that one makes, we had a history professor who kind of interrupted an entire week of our course, which was the recent history of American workers, to ask these, uh, these were, this is at Cornell, uh, many people were going into finance. And the question was, well, do you really want to do that? Why are you doing that? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. We were learning all about the Cornell students who had gone down with the Freedom Riders in the '60s to register African Americans to vote. And I remember thinking to myself, like, when are we going to have a cause? Like, my, my, like our generation, like, you know, we're not really protesting. I wish that we could get back to the '60s when people stood up for things. But it's so interesting to me now. I'm like, it's way darker than it was. It seems. This is often actually like during. The whole Charlottesville thing last year, like mm. this was kind of one of the things that I thought about a lot because it was just sort of like, I hate this. This is like so scary. This time period is so sad. Like I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, go to Charlottesville frequently. Like a sibling mm. of mine was there the day before the riots started yeah. and like left town because of that. So it felt very close to home. But like, well, I have to write about this from my perspective because like maybe if I write about this, like people, someone out there might get it. 
like someone's mind might be changed. I was talking to someone online about this. It was like, why are you always arguing with like these randoms on Twitter? Hmm. Like they're, it's not helpful. And it's like, well, for some reason I have like a high tolerance for arguing <laughs> with randoms on yeah. Twitter. Huh. And if I'm the person who could like maybe hopefully like seed a, one thought into this guy's mind that makes him like a little bit less racist, hmm. like I would prefer not like Barlowy the Scrivener, like I'd, I'd rather not be doing this, <laughs> right, frankly. Right. But if like this is a service that I can provide, then I, that's what I You're should be doing. It. Yeah. You so must I'm do just it. gonna like keep doing it. Huh. And also, I mean, some of that is total hubris. Like, ah, oh, I'm the one person who's like going to end racism on Twitter is not true. Or like, my column is going to like change the world. Mm. Like, Probably not. But thinking that but there it does is have an effect. a purpose and, you know, thinking that you are called to do something and thus forcing yourself to do it well and try and make it useful hmm. is something and that keeps you going. And you're not alone in it. Um, yeah. You're not the only one writing, rightly so. So it could be, you know, it's a, a marker of humility, but also a source of strength to say it's not all on me to end racism on Twitter. It's not all on me to make people think about things differently. But I can do something. It's, I don't have to do everything. It's not nothing. Yeah. Hopefully. I used to have a priest at my grad school parish who would say, people always come to me, students say, I want to make a difference. I can't make a difference. And the priest would say, well, you don't have to make a difference. Just make a contribution. I always like mm. that. I always, <laughs> I always thought about that. Like, you have to contribute something. But I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about during the hard times, do you have spiritual practices, things that, or not necessarily spiritual practices, but things that keep you grounded, things that enable you to then go and engage with the ideas, with the deep, with some of the deep pain, the things that are difficult to look at. What keeps you grounded, I guess? I eat a lot of haichu, which is a delicious Japanese candy. Honestly, <laughs> uh, I, I really don't necessarily, and this is like something I'm trying to work on. So huh. like, no, it's 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 mm. really something that I struggle with. Mm. I mean, I like try to go to mass more frequently. I mm. talk to people who are a stronger faith than I do. Yeah, I turn to friends who have a, yeah. a brighter outlook and are like less prone to pessimism than mm. I am. Mm. But no, I'm still I'm still trying to figure that out. You mean you don't have it all figured out? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> In fact. No. Which? It was interesting. I was um, at the Vatican in, I guess this would have been 20, it might have been 2012 or 2013, but no, it was 2013 because Francis had just been elected. And I got to meet with Cardinal Turkson, who mm -hmm. at the time, and I'm not sure if he still is, was the prefect for the Justice and Peace Dicastery. And I met with a Canadian Jesuit named Michael Cherney, who I guess he was sort of like the Cardinal's right-hand person in planning economic things, the head of their economic initiatives. And he was saying that actually the things that they were most excited about was not so much the church's social teaching, which they had like 20 or 30 pamphlets of that stuff printed out and I went to take them. He's like, no, don't take that stuff. What's really interesting is the retreats that we've been offering to like oil executives and people in charge of corporations that operate in Africa, because that's where like that's where people are actually in a position to influence things. And if we can get them thinking about the common good, then they might set an example. So it was, it was so surprising to me because you've got all the theory and I felt like that's what the event was heavy on, but you don't have the actual practical things mentioned in the speech, but they did have, the, the Vatican itself, at least the Justice and Peace Dicastery, 
uh, does have kind of a robust set of programs. So he was very excited to show me that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, actually in this money and economic questions, this uh, Dicastery's publication that I was reading, mm-hmm. it actually does go really specifically mm-hmm. into recommendations for how you can be kind of a conscious capitalist, actually. Mm-hmm. They're like, there's a whole section on how you buy responsibly or how you can mm-hmm. like think about interacting with the market responsibly. And I I was very pleased and also kind of amused to see how specific hmm. um, they got in this. So I would recommend it. But I'm sure there are people praying for Jeff Bezos. Hmm. Like that must be the case. But I also think that's a really interesting way of sort of thinking about the problems. Like one of the one of the topics I've been really fascinated by recently is billionaires, hmm. basically like these extremely, extremely wealthy people who really, like you said, like do have the power to um, enact great change. And some of them are doing it sort of. I mean, like you have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation mm-hmm. where they are like giving away all of their money mm-hmm. uh, and Warren Buffett is trying to do the same. And their ideas, like when they have an idea of a thing that they want to do, they can put that into action. And so Melinda Gates is really into like contraception in the third world, like Bill Gates is into ending malaria. And one wonders what sort of spiritual formation or even ethical formation they get in deciding, you know, what to do. How okay is it to know that you could possibly have this much control also over other people's lives, over the world, Mm -hmm. really, when you think about you know, the influence and the reach that these people have, Mm -hmm. it's, is anybody sort of watching the watchmen, I guess? Mm -hmm. Or like, who's, who's keeping an eye on that? Because they're just people and they have like lots of advisors, but at the end of the day, they're just like you and I. I'm not sure that I would trust myself to, you know, pick the one problem in the world that's most important and fix it. Who would I ask? Do you think of, I don't know, like the top 10 research universities in the U.S. and they've got endowments of, I don't know, 20 billion, uh, 20 billion would be like Yale, 30 would be like Harvard. But you could have like an entire Ivy League just with Jeff Bezos's personal wealth. You could endow an entirely new Ivy League. Like the idea being that it's not one person that gets to decide how $180 billion is spent, but uh, rather, I don't know, that could fund a lot of thinking. I mean, it's also... It's also fair to say, too, that it's not that he's just, like, sitting on a mountain of cash. Right. Like, these are shares and holdings. They're not all liquid. Right. But, yeah, it is strange. And I think perhaps having astronomical wealth kind of changes the way that you think about Mm -hmm. questions, too. Because if if you really think about it, just, like, that amount of money, you can't spend it. Like, in a lifetime, you'd have to spend millions of dollars a day. And there's only so much you can buy on Earth. But then how do you sort of conceptualize the future and what's important? And how do you, I guess, let go of the near term and midterm to think of something longer? And again, Mm -hmm. how do you teach virtue? Mm -hmm. How do you teach ethics? How Mm -hmm. do you teach people to think not about themselves and not Mm -hmm. in the near term? Because even with the endowing of universities Mm -hmm. or endowing specific uh, programs, I was actually... I'm just very interested in billionaires these days. <laughs> Reading a book called The Givers. I can't remember the author. It came out recently. It's very good. Hmm. It talks about just like the sort of different areas of 
philanthropy, mm-hmm. how sort of like the wealthy from like either tech or mm-hmm. old industry or like other places are sort of taking over philanthropy. Mm-hmm. But they note that people, even the wealthy, even those with like the most money, still tend to give to their interests, which is not necessarily that helpful. Hmm. Um, Like Princeton really does not need another $20 billion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, the Metropolitan Opera Mm -hmm. is fine. Mm -hmm. There are like many other things that you could give your money to, but Mm -hmm. people still tend to just say like, well, my kid goes here or I live in this town, so I'm going to give all of my money to this cause, Mm -hmm. even though in the broader sense, it doesn't necessarily make much sense. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other group of people This is also a concept that I find very interesting, who have gotten really into data-based or research-based giving. So places like GiveWell, who are either trying to fund like basic income pilots Mm -hmm. or, you know, sort of doing the utilitarian Mm -hmm. calculus of like how many mosquito nets versus X Mm -hmm. versus Y, like what's the most effective way of giving, which is one way of measuring Mm -hmm. what good you can bring, but it's not necessarily a holistic way Mm -hmm. of measuring good or like real human quantities Mm -hmm. it's just like very hard to decide Mm -hmm. i think Mm -hmm. and those are the questions that we need to answer Mm -hmm. there was this op-ed in the new york times Mm -hmm. recently by a guy he used to work for a bridge span or something Mm -hmm. but he was criticizing the sort of philanthropists and wealthy like men and women of davos who say that they're interested in sort of fixing problems of inequality. And so they like say that they're interested in clean capitalism Mm -hmm. or doing well by doing good and sort of like giving a little bit and then backpatting themselves. Mm -hmm. But they are not actually interested in changing the root causes of these problems. This is interesting, yeah. um, That they have created. (laughs) Exactly. So what is the kind of system that allows a person to accrue billions and billions of dollars of wealth? Yeah, uh, we can distract ourselves with, well, what are they going to do with it? Yeah, we're um, giving it back. You know, they're not. <laughs> and are they going to give it according to ethical ends? Uh, who's going to be guiding their decision making, which is it seems that this Vatican office was interested in doing. But I guess my question is, do you raise the attraction of young people, millennials to socialism, to reconceiving the entire system? the entire economic system, it's different to say, well, you know, the decisions of how society is going to be improved, they belong to the people who've made the most money, as if their their money gives them the authority to speak. But it seems that young people are interested in something different. And I guess I'm thinking of the success of the Ocasio-Cortez campaign, young people's attraction to Bernie Sanders. Like, there does seem to be a very real shift in how young people are thinking about economics, Hmm. especially as it becomes, it's (laughs) it's difficult to accumulate wealth. Like it's actually difficult to be a capitalist (laughs) unless you have capital or unless you have access to capital or unless you were born a capitalist. But I mean, going back to the question of, or the topic of vocation, actually, like I think maybe on some level that's part of it. I mean, I'm a convert, so I'm also just like not an expert in Catholic thinking or teaching at all. But one of the things that I think about sometimes is how do you sort of discover what you're meant to do and part of it Mm. is like what you're good at and what people see in you Mm. and so if like people keep asking you to do things like maybe that's a thing you should be doing (laughs) (laughs) or like if you're the person they invite to have this conversation or like this is something that you are comfortable doing like maybe it's a thing that you should do more of Mm. and I like writing like I really enjoy discussion I don't really 
experience super visible stage fright, although I think you could tell that I was like a little bit nervous yesterday. But like maybe I'm more comfortable than the average person like doing this sort of thing. Or maybe I'm like particularly interested in these questions. And so like mm. if I'm asked to do these things, like, yeah, totally, I should do them. That's yeah. the work I'm called to do. Mm. Yeah. But to the question of sort of figuring out what to do next or being left wanting, I think that, I think you're right. I think that is something that a lot of young people are experiencing in the church and I mm. think in religion and sort of like life in general. And I do sort of wish that there was more specificity in how the church, you know, explained these topics, explained these questions, because there is a lot of sort of richness in the church that you could dip into. But many parishes, many pastors are like pretty in line with the general like understanding of mm. how markets work and what things are appropriate and don't talk about it that much. But also, I think everyone has to kind of discover their mm. faith yeah. for themselves. Yeah. And that's actually something that I'm like going through right now. But you have to, I mean, you can learn as much about what the church says as you want to, but do you actually believe it yourself? Like what parts of this are you going to practice? What resonates with you? Like how does it work in your own life? That's mm. part of being an adult and part of being a real member of this congregation of the faith. Like you, you have to do it. I like this idea of that I'm kind of getting the sense from you, the sense from the questions that you bring or the, um, the way that you think about things. This comfort with a process that's unfolding or the comfort with incompleteness. I don't know why I get that, but I really do. Like the sense that the journalist's task, the writer's task, and really the Catholic or every Christian, every human's task is to keep asking questions, but to keep formulating responses. That is, the way I respond at one time is going to be the way I respond at one time. And I've got a comfort with that. You said, you, you know, you're, <laughs> you're receptive to the, the messages that the universe kind of sends or others send you. You don't have a lot of stage fright. So there's a great, but there's a great kind of courage in it. And I guess if that's, if that's something that our moment requires. Cardinal Tobin spoke about the virtues, as did Jeffrey Sachs. He talked a lot about Aristotle, whose entire moral philosophy is predicated on this notion of virtues. And I'm wondering if the, the, the virtue that we need now most is courage and discernment. And that can take so many different forms. But where do you find courage or what gives you courage to continue doing your job, to continue writing, to continue asking questions? I was kind of chuckling a little bit while you said that because Another struggle of mine, mm. I just really live a struggle life right now, is that I'm really uncomfortable with uncertainty, actually. Mm. I hate it. Mm -hmm. It is very uncomfortable for me. I do not like it. So the fact that I apparently give off the impression that I don't is fascinating to me. Mm. Hmm. Courage and discernment. Mm. Yeah, those, those are good virtues. I mean, I think you're right. Courage is what it takes to keep sort of forging forward, even mm. when things look crazier than ever. Super bleak. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, discernment. I mean, right now, really the whole, I think, well, unfortunately not the whole country, but many of us are waking up to how important discernment is and just mm. like knowing what to believe and who to trust and sort of where to go on a sort of very basic, like, what website should I go to to read the news? Mm. And a far more macro, like, 
what value system is real, what mm. really matters in my life. Where do I find the courage? I mean, again, to keep reminding myself that like it's not just me existing mm. sort of atomized in the world. Mm. Like there's more going on that is not under my control, mm. but that all things work for good in some way. Mm. I know the plans I have for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're for your welfare. Yeah, and I don't know, trying to also look for the good mm. in some ways. Like there there are some good things happening. I think so. <laughs> like they're even just I we're sitting in this like room, just like even the view from this window is like incredible it's beautiful like beautiful green trees we're overlooking the hudson blue sky nice clouds like yeah i trying to keep an eye on like what is good still out there even if it's like the tiniest things or the biggest things yeah this is i have a lot to think about now you've like asked me very interesting questions that i need to like take home and meditate on 